All right. How many of you have said this before? When I grow up, I am not going to be like that. You ever say that before when you were a kid? You ever catch yourself as a kid or remember yourself as a kid? Or maybe you've heard your own kid say, well, I'm not going to be like that when I grow up. You ever heard yourself say that or heard your kids say that? You know, growing up, I, growing up, I can remember myself. I, maybe this is just me, but I can remember believing myself that I would never choose to make whatever decision I was upset about, right? Whenever it was my turn to make the calls, my turn to call the shots and my turn to make the decisions I wasn't going to be like that usually I said this in response to something my dad may have said my dad may have said something to me I said well when I grow up I'm not going to have to do that or I'm not going to be that or I'm not going to do that I think all of us go through this stage when we grow up it doesn't mean you hate your parents in any way it's not saying that you hate your parents but I just think it's a natural part of growing up. Many of us have felt this way before. We think that if it were only, if, if, if it were just up to me, if, if, if it were up to me, I would do it in a different way. If, if it were up to us, we would make different judgment calls. We would know exactly how to handle that situation if it were mine, if it were ours to deal with. You know what the funny thing is? I don't know about you, but you grow up. It doesn't really turn out that way, does it? It doesn't really turn out that way at all. At least it hasn't in my own. Many of us grow up to be exactly like our own parents, no matter how hard we try to avoid it. No matter how hard we try to avoid it, we begin to look like them. We begin to sound like them. We begin to make the same types of decisions that they made. The decisions that we couldn't stand, right? When I grow up, I'm not going to be like that. Well, here you are, and you're just like that, right? You catch yourself, and you realize, man, never thought I'd be like this, but here I am, saying the same thing my dad said, saying the same thing that my mom said. I think Twain, Mark Twain, said it best. This is what he said about this. He said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. Right? I think we've all heard this quote. I think we've all heard some rendition of this quote before. That it's amazing how wise your parents get when you become the parent yourself, right? I think we all know this sentiment to be true because the truth is we learn very quickly just how clueless we were when we were so adamant and so sure of ourselves about our future self's ability to make judgments. We thought when it was our turn to call the shots, when it was our turn to pay the bills, we thought when it was our turn to live with the stress and live with the consequences, we thought we would be ready. But ultimately, a 
lot of times we find ourselves making the exact same decisions, the exact same mistakes, and the exact same judgments we pledged we never would. That's why this Twain quote hits the nail on the head. And tonight, that is exactly where we find Christianity in our study tonight. This is exactly where we find Christianity tonight because the Protestant churches that we started talking about last week in the Protestant Reformation, we find the Protestant churches becoming the very thing that they hated the most. We find the Protestant denominations becoming the very thing so much. Tonight in our study, we're going to see the Protestant churches show the very characteristics the Catholic Church showed when we talked about the beginning of the Reformation. Don't get me wrong, tonight, I don't believe that in any way the Catholic Church was this wise father and the Protestant churches were these, you know, uh, annoying kids. I'm not trying to make that analogy per se, but I am trying to say sometimes we become the very thing that we hate. We, we, we do things and we say things and we become things that we never thought we would. I'm just trying to show how sometimes in life we become the thing that we very much detest. And this happens in life all the time. I can't tell you how many people life that I know of as, as my friends, people I grew up with, people I went to school with, that at one point in their life, if, if you were to ask them what they thought about blank, they would have been so against it, right? If you were to go to them and ask them about a specific subject and you asked them what their thoughts were, they would have been totally against it. few years down the road, you see them practicing the very thing that they hated in years past. A few years go down the road, and they're practicing the very thing that they once abhorred. They once taught against certain things that they now teach in favor for. And when we think about our study, the restoration movement, as we think about what we studied last week of the Reformation movement is no different. It's no different than what happens in the history because these reformers who had originally intended for the Reformation to, to usher in a new age of, of belief, who did not believe in, in handmade doctrine, who did not believe in, in doctrines of men superseding the Scriptures, We see those same congregations now are completely chained and enslaved to human written creeds. We see governmental authorities who once had mandated Catholicism are now mandating the Protestant faith just as they had once done and just as they had once detested. In our study tonight, persecution is back on the rise, but the persecution is no longer going towards those who are leaving the Catholic faith and are going to the Protestant The persecution is arising for those who want to leave the Protestant faith and start 
continuing the Reformation. Instead of focusing on reforming the church to God's intent, the leaders are now entrenching themselves in contentment of wherever their individual sect had arrived when it comes to doctrine. You see, because at the beginning of our study tonight, we had so many adamant followers of Luther. And we have so many adamant followers of Calvin. But when it comes to followers of Jesus, we have very few, if, if, if any. And they are very few and far between. When we think about this time in history, power greed and pride and money and notoriety and pressure among all a host of other things are to blame for this but in this day and age there was no greater political societal or financial power than religion religion was the number one political societal and financial power in the world religion was Instead of rediscovering the pieces of the puzzle, remember we talked about last week where these reformers started putting this piece back and, and this piece back after the box had been shaken for a thousand years. Remember we talked about that illustration last week. Instead of putting the pieces back to the puzzle, at the beginning of our study tonight, we see the denominations adding in pieces to the mix just like they had once tested. Even though the Reformation started correcting at the beginning of it, it started correcting the major flaws in Catholic doctrine. They were starting to introduce glaring flaws in the Protestant churches. And just like with the Reformation, people began to have a problem with it. Because when we last met, it was 200 years before where we're meeting today. 200 years have gone by since the Reformation movement with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. It's been 200 years since we were studying last week. When we last met, we saw various reforms being spread throughout many parts of Europe in the 16th century. But tonight we fast forward to the 18th century. A couple of hundred years of change later and just like we talked about the thousand years in between our other study between the Catholic Church and and the Reformation we've had 200 and just like that gap in this gap we have the same thing going on we have a 200 years of people adding people taking away we've had 200 years of people drifting to the left and drifting to the right We've had 200 years of people binding where Scripture hasn't bound and, and loosening where Scripture hasn't bound. And it's been 200 years of many, many changes. And some of these changes were for the better. Some of these changes were for the worst. But in our study tonight, it has finally led us to the true foundations, the true origins of the Restoration. We have gone on a, a long journey to get to this point, but tonight is the beginnings, the, the true origins of the movement we are talking about in this class. And it's going to be a movement that we discover was not started by Stone or Campbell, 
the same way we talked about the Reformation was not necessarily started by Luther or Calvin. Tonight we see the movement start in the place that many of us here at Buford specifically are, are very aware of. Tonight the movement starts Scotland. Many of us have been to Scotland in this congregation. I've gone on two for Church of Christ. A lot of our teens growing up have been. I, I, I'm, I'm seeing a, a few people that have been to Scotland uh, in this room tonight. That is where we of the restoration. In the same way we had to observe why there was a need for restoration when we went back in time all the way back to Rome. The same way we did that, we have to take the time tonight to investigate how, where, and why the movement began when it comes to restoration. Before we get into that study, though, let's remember what's brought us to this point thus far. In phase one of our study, we talked about the biblical basis for restoration. We went to God's Word, and, and we dug deep, and, and we tried to understand God's expectations are for Christians and for his followers when things get off the rails. God expects his children to restore things back to the way he expects them to In our second class, we said, well, what are we restoring to? We're restoring the church to God's intent. And that intent is found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's the intent that God had. And we talked about drifting to the right and drifting to the left and, and what that means. And we talked about binding and loosening and adding and taking away. And so our first phase, the introduction to the movement was, was strictly biblical, scriptural, as, as we went back to the text of Scripture to understand what it means to have a restoration, to understand the, the, the restoration plea and to understand restoration theology a little bit more. And then in phase two, we, we've gone back to understand the foundations of the movement, the, the, the foundations of the movement, the restoration movement. So our first class, we talked about going all the way back to when it fell off the rails in the first place, when Rome had these three edicts that made Christianity the, the recognized religion took away persecution and allowed Christianity to be the only religion that was acceptable. And so we talked about what that happened. And the fallout from that was a thousand years of confusion. A thousand years of, of the Catholic Church introducing things that was not in God's Word at all. And so we had a thousand years of confusion and, and we talked about that in another class. And Last week we, we ended with the question in our study where would the restoration be without the Reformation? Because that's what we see. We, we, we see in the Reformation that they started the first domino that allowed us in our restoration to be where we are tonight. And so tonight our class takes us back to the true roots of the restoration movement. Those roots come nowhere else in the country of Scotland. I love Scotland. I love Scotland. 
you ever have a chance to go to Scotland, take that chance. It's an amazing country, beautiful country. Such an amazing thing takes place in this country, even though it is so small. If you're going to have a discussion on the roots of the Restoration in Scotland, it has to start with a guy named John Glass. John Glass is really where any discussion on the Restoration movement needs to begin with. John Glass was reared in Zwinglian and Calvinist teaching. Remember we talked last week about Holdrick Zwingli? He started what was called Reformed Theology him came John Calvin and he was really reared in Calvinist and Zwinglian theology but ultimately as John Glass started to study God's word for himself and as he and he starts to realize that these men didn't go far enough in their reformation they didn't go far enough in their reforming the church you see because what happened was the Protestant leaders, the, the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, they saw the pendulum swung way over here during the Catholic Church's reign. And in order to combat that, they were going to swing the pendulum all the way back up the other way because surely that was the best option to do the exact opposite of what the Catholic Church was doing. And in some ways, that was absolutely right. In some ways, that, that wasn't as wise. And so the pendulum continues swinging back and forth out of control, so to speak. And that's where we see John Glass in his time in the 1700s. He starts to realize that, that, that these reformers had not gone far enough in some of their restoration and some of their reforming of the church. You see, because there are two different types of reformers, and we didn't have time to, to get into this last week. I, I wanted to get into it tonight. There are two different types of reformers. If you study this long enough, you're going to understand there's two different types of reformers we can see through history. Some reformers are known as magisterial reformers, and others are known as radical reformers. When you ask what's a magisterial, what do you see in that word? Majesty, right? So when you think about this type reformer these are the reformers that still paid homage to the government in some way these are the reformers that that still stepped in line with what the government said on some matters these are the reformers that that obeyed uh, some of the government and cooperated with the state and these were the reformers that were not willing to kick against the goads so to speak and when we think about who these reformers were, th th these are the ones we talked about last week, okay? These reformers are, are Zwingli and, and Luther and Calvin, and even though they may have not agreed with the coterminous church that had the marriage of church and state, they weren't going to go against the government completely or entirely. But then you have this other type of reformer that's going along the same time as the magisterial reformer radical reformer. Well, what's a radical reformer? It's obviously somebody who is willing to go against the state. It's obviously somebody who is willing to kick against the codes, who is not willing to cooperate with government or the state. And when we think about the difference between these two, which ones do we know? 
ones are written about? Which ones uh, have stood the test of time as these heroes, so, on, so to speak? Well, it would be the magisterial reformers, right? We know who Zwingli is. We know who Luther is. We know who Calvin is. And why is that? Because they were willing to not go against the government in some stances. They were willing not to kick against the goes. They were willing to cooperate. They were willing to uh, play ball, you might say. Let me ask you if you ever heard of these reformers. Anybody ever heard of the Netflix Mons? Or George Blaurock? Or Conrad Grebel? Anybody? No, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. I didn't think so because these were the radical reformers going along the same time as Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. These were the radical reformers that, that aren't known to history because they did not cooperate with the government. In a lot of ways, the government still controlled what was written about the Reformation. So they're going to write about the ones that are willing to cooperate. And when we think about John Glass, the reason I bring that up is because John Glass could only be described as a radical reformer. John Glass was a radical reformer because the things he was preaching, the things he was practicing, were more along the lines of what we see the radical reformers doing who came before him. Because when he started to make his own reformation in his local congregation, when he started to make some changes to his congregation that go against the Zwinglian and the Calvinist teaching that had been piling and compiling for 200 years, when he starts to go against those things, we see him removed from his office of preaching entirely in 1730. In the year 1730, his license to preach is, is taken away from him because he was so radical that the Protestant churches could not deal with him anymore. But, the same way we see with Wycliffe, the same way we see with Luther and Calvin and all these guys, he starts to get people who support his teaching. He starts to get people who, who, who agree with his line of thinking. He starts to have people listen to his lessons and say, yes, this is what I've been thinking too. I, 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 think, I think we're wrong on this. I think we've missed the mark on this. And so he starts to get people to support him and, and, and hear what he has to say and agree with him and, and even start preaching the same things in their own churches. And so he has other preachers joining in, preaching this congregationalist message. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. But what were some of these radical teachings? Because we hear the word radical today and we're like, I want to be a radical. I don't want to be a radical. I mean, I don't want to be looked at as some crazy guy. I don't want to be radical. But when we look back at this and the difference between magisterial and radical, I hope all of us would want to be radical when you hear the difference in the two. So what were these radical teachings of John Glass? Well, the radical teachings were biblical teachings. That's what made them radical in that day and age. Biblical teachings had become radical teachings in the day and age we're talking about tonight. Here are some of the teachings. It says, not only should the church and state not have a coterminous 
relationship, right? Marriage, the church should not be married. Okay, the Protestants believe that some, to some degree. Not only that, John Glass, church should not have a headquarters. What? The church doesn't have a headquarters? There's not a location that we can all go to for counsel and for understanding and for teaching and, and for judgment? What are we going to do? John Glass was radical because he said church should not be like a corporation that has a headquarters. Well, what's the alternative? Well, John Glass said that the alternative is that each congregation should be governed internally through the oversight of an eldership. 1700s. First time anybody thought about that since the New Testament. 1700s. Glass comes in and champions the idea for autonomous congregational leadership. What would go on to be his, his contribution to the restoration was he, he taught congregationalism. What is that idea? Well, it's that each congregation is in charge and responsible for interpreting the Word of God, for practicing the Word of God, and is responsible for making decisions that aren't to the right and aren't to the left and aren't adding and aren't taking away. It's the local congregation that makes those decisions. It's the local eldership, the oversight of the local shepherds that make those types of decisions. And man, this wasn't just radical at the time. This was unthinkable. The thought of each individual congregation getting to make autonomous decisions Blew it all up. That's what made John Glass not only radical, but crazy man for his time. But ultimately, we know tonight. Is that not the way the church is governed today? Individually, by autonomous elders that are appointed to each congregation? The same way that each congregation should be individually governed, John Glass said, individual people should be governing themselves. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Seek your own salvation with fear and trembling. Comes John Glass, and John Glass says, individual people need to take ownership of their faith. Instead of their faith being handed to them and them being told what to do and told and told what the Bible says. John Glass comes along and says, the same way we have congregational autonomy, we have individual autonomy. And it's up to each and every person to search the Scriptures for themselves. What? Each individual search the Scriptures for themselves instead of hearing whatever the preacher says or hearing whatever the congregational leader says? What kind of blasphemy is that? That's what John Glass comes along and teaches. He believes that individual members had the ability and had the right, had the expectation from God to decide for themselves from the Scriptures what was right and what was wrong. And tonight, man, we look at those things and we take that for granted, right? The radical teachings. I don't think, I hope, 
I hope no one tonight would be like, that's radical. I don't know if I agree with that. If you do, maybe we need to have a conversation. When we look at the scriptures today, we see that this is obvious, right? We, we, we look at some of these teachings of John Glass and we're like, duh. You've got to realize this, this is because we're, we get to wear 21st century lenses. Not that the Word of God changed. The, the Word of God didn't change. But here are people who, like I, we have been talking about, were understanding and covering the truth over a long process of time. John Glass even taught that uh, individual Christians need to govern their salvation, need to be in charge of their salvation and obedience. So we look at this today and, and, and we think to ourselves, well, duh. But that's because we have the blessing of being on this side of the restoration. We have the blessing of being on this side of history. When we look at John Glass, it's, it's, it's no understatement to say that John Glass trailblazed an entirely new way of thinking. And he lit the flame that caused the fire. That that fire then turned to blaze. That was the restoration. It was John Glass who lit the match. And then after him, we see Robert and William Sandeman. Robert and William Sandeman come after him. Again, it's still, we're still in the country of Scotland. Robert and William Sandeman were, were, were students of John Glass. They, they were supporters of John Glass. They, they agree with what John Glass had to say. And in fact, Robert believed so much that he fell in love with Glass's daughter and married her. Robert Sandeman marry John Glass's daughter Catherine. And so what we see in these two men, these are two brothers, we find them taking what John Glass had said and spreading it more and more throughout the country of Scotland. The Sandeman brothers continued that work that John Glass had started. And they even went so far as to send a publication. Guess where? To America. Robert and William Sandeman would send publications and would send tracts and would send uh, uh, messages and periodicals and, and thoughts about congregationalism. This idea that John Glass came up with, this idea that each congregation is in charge of ruling themselves and governing themselves. He sent publications over to America with those teachings and the support from Scripture and, and the, the biblical basis for it. He sent them to the American colonies. What an amazing thing to think about. You know, I think it's, it's hard for us tonight to even imagine that. Imagine that, people sending missionaries to America. You ever think about that? It's un almost in our day and age, but guess what? That's exactly what happened from this point in history. We find that these two men send publications over to America, and guess what? This is proof of, of, of one thing, if anything. It's happened before. We don't start teaching the lost. Sending people to America to teach the gospel has happened before, and it will happen again if you and I don't start teaching the lost. If you and I don't start going and doing in our everyday lives. 
went back to the Sandemans. Sandemans never got to come to America physically. Their publications, again, light that flame in the American colonies themselves. Their publications and writings started to make an indelible impression on the colonists. And in those publications, they championed the same beliefs that John Glass found from Scripture. They just expounded even further on them. And what we see them teach about is, is human agency, not only congregationalism, but, but human agency, the, the truth that every individual has the fundamental right to search the Scriptures for themselves and to respond according to what God's Word says. Even if those teachings go against the Presbyterian doctrine. You see, in, in Scotland, that, that, that was the church ordained. That, that was the ordained church, was, was the Presbyterian church. And so glass came out of the Presbyterian church. The Sandemans came out of the Presbyterian church. And what they wind up teaching is, if what the Presbyterian church that you worship at is against God's Word, you have every right, and God commands you not to do that thing. This was radical. This was unthinkable in that day and age. But that is what we see the Sandmans going around and sending publications all over the world with these types of teachings. They also taught that uh, the church government should be what the scriptures teach, just like John Glass taught about. Their teaching would continue through the mid-1700s. We see their lifespan there towards the mid, the, the, the middle, late 1700s until Robert died in 1771. And then we have another set of dynamic duo brothers by the name of Robert and James Haldane. Yet, a, yet another group of brothers. We had this dynamic duo brothers of the Sandeman brothers, and now we have uh, the Haldane brothers. And among all of these, we find the root of our movement. Robert and James Haldane were obviously heavily influenced, right, by the writings of Robert Sandeman and William Sandeman and John Glass. They're right along the same time as these men in a very small country itself. And so what we see happen is Robert goes around all of Scotland establishing congregations, congregationalist congregations, congregations that believe that they should be ruled individually apart from each other and that you can't bind on us what we have to do and we can't and on you what you have to do. You have to be autonomously led by the local eldership. That's the church that Robert started to spread all over the country of Scotland. And while he was doing that, James was a missionary. He went all over the world teaching this message. He traveled on many missions to India and China and a lot of other places. It's, it's amazing to, to look at the history of, of James Haldane as he... as all over the world as a missionary teaching these messages, these radical beliefs, also known as biblical ones. Because of this, because Robert establishing congregation in Scotland and James going all around the world, the Haldane brothers were well known all over the nation. They were known nationwide for their powerful commitment to 
teaching, commitment to going back to the Bible, trying to show the, the importance of adhering to biblical doctrine over the commandments of men. The Haldanes also focused heavily on the New Testament pattern for salvation. They were some of the first ones to say, hey, we were taking a look at this thing, infant baptism. Why are we dunking all these babies? They started asking the question, are babies in need of salvation? We find this move starting with Haldanes. And right alongside of them, working hand in hand with Haldane brothers, we see Greville Ewing. Greville Ewing is another giant in the history of our restoration movement. Greville Ewing had a very successful secular life. He was very well off and he had no reason to, to leave it all behind him to join this movement of congregationalism with Glass and the Sandemans and the Haldanes, but he does it anyway. He leaves his entire life behind him and devotes himself to this movement to joining James on mission trips, to joining Robert as they spread the gospel, they spread the truth all over Scotland. Because of his works, Ewing was given the title. If you look at his, his history, you look at Greville Ewing, you're going to see that he is the father of modern congregationalism in Scotland. That's the title that was given to Greville Ewing because he dedicated his whole life to this. So what happens is Ewing leaves the Church of Scotland, the Church. He leaves the Presbyterian Church and he begins to teach in the University of Glasgow. The University of Glasgow is where a lot of, of noted people went. But it was there that Greville Ewing started to champion the message that Glass had begun, that the Sandemans had expounded on, and that the Haldanes had spread to that point. You know, fascinating. I think it's fascinating to look at this. Look, look at this timeline of events and start to realize, you know what? John Glass didn't have it all figured out. John Glass didn't have it all figured out and, 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 and neither did the Santa brothers. And neither did the Haldane brothers. And neither did Greville Ewing. They, none of them had it all figured out yet. But I think that's just what we've been trying to talk about. Let's just take a moment to think back to this illustration we've had a few weeks ago. This was the church. An over that had been left out in the pasture for thousands of years, over a thousand years. And at this point, almost 2,000 years. People doing whatever they wanted to to that sheep, neglecting that sheep. And what we've got to realize is though they didn't have the knowledge that we have tonight. They, they, they don't have the understanding that we have tonight. But just like we look at those reformers and they started putting the pieces back together, we've got to look at these restorers in Scotland and say they started to put the pieces back together. They started to shear that wool off of that sheep. They started to shear years and years worth of overgrown wool. What we see Ewing do is he continues to teach and he continues to mold all of these different students that he gets in his class in Glasgow. He, he starts to mold them and teach them the truths of God's Word. And it was there that he gets a student. 
he gets a student in class one day at the ripe age of 20. In the year 1808, he gets this new student that is eager to learn. He gets this new student that, that is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, 20 years old. And this 20-year-old student loved to go wherever Brother Ewing went. If Greville Ewing was going to that congregation, he was going to that congregation. If Brother Ewing was going across the nation to go establish another congregation with the Haldane brothers, here's this 20-year-old student going along with them. This student was only there one year in the University of Glasgow. But in that year, he devoted himself to the teaching of, of Glass and Sandeman and Haldanes and, and Brother Ewing himself. And these teachings were so powerful to him, so appealing to this young man that they shaped the rest of his life. And he devoted the rest of his life to those teachings just as they had done. Tonight, as, as, as we start to try to make this make sense, to make it matter, to make it Scripture to go to God's Word for application. As we look back at the last piece of phase two of our study, the foundation of the movement, why does the why does the study of this matter? It's a good question. To this point, it's just been a bit of a history class, right? One of the most fascinating things to me when you look at Scripture and when you look at the, the history of the Restoration Movement is the providence of God. The providence of God. That, that, that's a thought that, that's hard for us to talk about. It's hard for us to understand. And why is that? For us to study the providence of God? Well, it's because it's something that we can't fully understand understand how God operates. We don't understand how God moves in everyday life. We don't understand how God is, is so superior and so infinite. And we're so finite. And so inferior. But the providence of God we see all throughout the scriptures. We can see the providence of God as God goes throughout the entire Old Testament paving the way for Christ, paving the way for Jesus, and, and paving the way for Christianity and salvation in the gospel. It's amazing to look at the Old Testament and to see all of that, and, and we have record of it, and we have proof of it as we look at the Old Testament time and time again, the providence of God. But what does it mean after Revelation? You know, unfortunately, I think there are some Christians who don't think the providence of God is a thing anymore. I think there are Christians who, 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 who don't believe in the providence of God. You want proof of the providence of God? You've seen who I'm married to? Look at that providence. Here's this woman that is smart, that is pretty, that is kind, that is nice. And here she is in Illinois. And I'm in Alabama. I never planned on going anywhere north of Tennessee. And yet we meet at, at Freed Hardeman. Hopefully you can feel the same way about your spouse tonight. That God's providence had to be involved. That the providence of God, that God was doing something in my life to lead me to that moment. 
God performs modern-day miracles or anything like that, but God has a hand in our everyday life. If He doesn't, then we might as well just quit studying this. If God is not able to do something in my life, then why do I pray? Of course I believe in the providence of God. I hope you do too. The, the Bible is filled time and time again with the providence of God. And that providence continues on today. I love going back to the restoration and, and learning the process that all of these people had to go through to find the knowledge of the truth. I love how, how the truth wasn't just handed to them on a silver platter, but they had to search it for themselves. They had to understand for themselves and, and search for the truth through their own personal study. I love going back and looking how they had to seek their own salvation and how they practiced personal conviction over political correctness, over peer pressure, or over any other thing like that. Even though I look back at the Restoration, I see all of those points that are very true. That's not the main reason I love the Restoration Movement. The main reason I love the Restoration Movement is because God's providence is evident. The providence of God is so clearly evident when you go back and look at the history that God was doing something through these people. To me, it's so fascinating to think about. Here are all these different people in different phases of life with different backgrounds and different denominations and, and different races and different, and different socioeconomic backgrounds. Everything about them were different. And even though they were all so different, they together left the doctrines of men. Together they united together in, in, in one voice and left all the traditions of men for God. Regardless of what was going to happen to them, regardless of their reputation, regardless of their lives, they came together to find unity and peace and truth and comfort that only the Scriptures could give them. Like I said, God's providence is one of the most difficult things for us to understand as humans. But we see it in Scripture. Romans 8, verse 28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and in glory by Christ Jesus. Genesis chapter 50, at the end of Joseph's life, we realize that his entire life was a life of providence. Because at the end of his life, Joseph says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Proverbs 16, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every... Um, that sound like Providence. Chapter 6, Jesus himself says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Does that sound like providence to you? I think it's hard for us to understand how all things work together for good, though. Right? 
it's hard for us to understand how suffering can be good when you look at Joseph's story. How can the pain that he went through be good? How can death be good? How can illness be good? How does God supply all of our needs? God is in charge with how the lots are cast. And why are they cast so poorly in my life from time to time? These are all the questions that plague our mind as we go through our life and we think about providence when we're in the midst of crossroads. When we look back at the restoration movement, how in the world did God do what he did? In this day and age, in such a, a, a like Scotland, he started this movement to restore his church. I have no idea when I look back at this. I have no idea what to, what, what, what to think about God bringing about all these men at the same time that believed the same thing, that taught the same thing and influenced others with the same thing. I have no idea how John Glass came along the same time as the Sandman brothers. I have no idea how the, the Sandman brothers came along at the same time as the Haldane brothers. I have no idea how Greville Ewing came along the same time as the Haldane brothers. I'll tell you one thing I do know, though. I do know that the most amazing thing is that little bright 20-year-old student that we referenced earlier. It's a story that will put hairs on the back of your neck stand up story that you cannot refute was the providence of God. Because when we think back to the paths crossing, you path crossing with this student, it's nothing short of what some say is a God thing. This had to have been a God thing. When you know this story, there's no doubt that God's at work. Because when you think about that Irish 20-year-old, bright-eyed student, you may not know who he is unless you know the history. But this 20-year-old student who, who was taken under Greville Ewing's wing, this 20-year-old student who fell in love with the teachings of congregationalism and independent thinking and studying the scriptures for himself, while he was in school in Glasgow, that student's name was Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell was a student of Greville Ewing. Remember we talked about Greville Ewing being this, this uh, teacher that this student came to in the year 1808? Well, a year before that, in 1807, a man by the name of Thomas Campbell had traveled over to America to build a life for his family and, and, and to build a new life in America as, as many people in that time did. He had already traveled over and tried to set up a life for his, his family but he left his, his, the rest of his family over in Europe at that time. Instead of, of getting to join their father, the Campbells waited a year for Thomas to set up the family and to set up the house and to set up all the things needed. They waited a year. And then Alexander got his family together, got his mom and his siblings together to get on a ship to go over to America to join their father. But something happened on that trip. Before they could get many miles off of shore, before they could get anywhere too far out on the ocean, 
were shipwrecked. Alexander Campbell and his family, they're shipwrecked and they could no longer meet Thomas in America. And the next time a ship was available was in the winter time and they said, we can't brave the, the sea at winter, so we're going to stay in Glasgow for a year. And Thomas writes to his son Alexander and he says, I want you to go to the same school I went to. What school was that? The University of Glasgow, where Greville Ewing was the teacher. And where Greville Ewing took this young kid under his arm and taught him all of these truths that we find in God's Word. None of his family were drowned or were lost, but this delay allowed him to learn the truth about so many things. It was at this school that he would come across Greville Ewing who would expose him to this frame of thinking that would light the spark that would one day make the entire movement go ablaze. question tonight, how different would this class be that ship never read? Would we even be here tonight? I don't know if we can answer that question and I don't know if it's right for us to ask. It has to deal with providence. If it hadn't been for that shipwreck, the movement may have lost what wound up being their most prolific leader. I'm not saying God wouldn't have found another way because just as God's providence has proven time and time again, He finds another way. To say that the entire movement hung on Alexander Campbell's shoulders would be wrong. Because that would mean that the work of Greville Ewing and the Haldanes and the Sandemans and John Glass and Barton W. Stone, who we haven't even talked about yet, that would mean their, their, their work was for nothing. But I will tell you that when it comes to Alexander's legacy in the restoration movement, it is undeniably unparalleled. And we will see that as we progress throughout the study of this quarter. His writing, his preaching, his influence was unrivaled by his contemporaries. But he spent a year in Glasgow. And then it was time to reunite with his father, Thomas. It was time to reunite with his father, Thomas, and tell him all the things that he had learned while he was in school in Glasgow. It was time to reunite with his father, Thomas, and for them to, to talk about what they had learned while they were apart. And it was a truly fascinating story. That story is to be continued. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for allowing us to come together tonight to think about all the providence that had to take place. Not only in the scriptures, not only in the Old Testament as we lead up to Christ, but all throughout history. The providence of your mighty hand, your sovereign hand, that is so evident in our lives. We pray that we can believe in that, that we can trust in you to know that you hold the future in your hands. We pray that we believe that in our individual lives tonight. Whatever struggle we might have, we can have peace in knowing that you've got it under control. In Jesus' name we pray.